We've got the latest in the war on cash, as well as the stocks that we've been buying. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me today, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Man, it is just flying right by. It is. And uh, before we get to the war on cash, because there's an interesting development in the war on cash, um, it's Halloween. It's the last day of the month. It's been a good month for the S&P 500, up 8% for the month. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, which we don't spend a lot of time focusing on, and I would argue rightly so, because it's an average of just 30 stocks, but the Dow is up 14% for the month. It reminds me of something we've talked about before, Jason, of, of just sort of make sure you have room in your portfolio for those steady performers, because every once in a while, they can be even more than steady. They can be in positive territory. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're um, we've talked a lot recently about how there have been just so many of sort of the, the no-brainer ideas, the no-brainer companies out there that seem to be trading at just or seem to be valued at just very, very reasonable um, prices today in relation to their long-term prospects. And I mean that that I mean we we've talked before about how the market performs in bear markets, right? We've been in and out of bear market uh, all all year. It feels like, and and it given all of the the macroeconomic concerns that exist today, that 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 really hasn't changed, right? I mean, the prospect of interest rates continuing their their trek upward remains. Um, the war in Ukraine remains. Uh, China's zero COVID policy remains. I mean, there are a lot of things going on out there that that would. Um, be seen as, as headwinds to growth here in, in, in the near term, at least. And, and you know, we plenty of plenty of talk about recession 2023. A lot of people would argue that we already are in a recession. So it, it's nice to see sort of the light at the end of the tunnel, even if it's just a very brief glimmer, right? And, and it does speak to also the fact that we see the volatility that we see during these these stretches is is real. But it also speaks to why you you don't want to trade in and out of these kinds of markets, right? Basically, I mean, it, history tells us that essentially um, over half of the S and P five hundred's best days occurred during bear markets. And and I know that people feel like, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's a bear market. Well, what it speaks to, I think, is really the psychology at play, right? In in, in the volatility at play, it, it is something that exists. It's it's uh it's not an opinion. It's a fact. And so it really does speak to why uh, we encourage folks to to stay the course and not try to time getting in and out of the market. Um, because it's just it's impossible to do sustainably well. Let's move on to the war on cash. Which, uh, if today's news is any indication, uh, cash is not going quietly, or or I should say, uh, non digital payments not going quietly. J.P. Morgan Chase is launching a platform that it created for the rental market, specifically for property owners and managers. And the point of the platform is to automate the collection of rent payments. And the stat that blew my mind, Jason, was 78% of people are still paying their monthly rent with checks and money orders. And and I haven't rented a place in a long time. I would not have guessed it was that high. 
Yeah, I'm I'm with you. It does feel like we should be. It feels like that number should be lower. I'm with you. I mean, I haven't rented a place in quite some time, but um, I mean, the fact remains that that data is out there, and you've got more than 100 million Americans that pay a combined 500 billion dollars annually in rent, according to J.P. Morgan's research. So it absolutely makes sense that they would want to do this. I, I totally get it. Um, it's also worth noting. I mean, they are not the only ones pursuing this space. You know, when, when you and I were talking about this earlier this morning, it the the first thing that came to my mind. It reminded me a lot of a company that I had followed for a while, several years back, called RealPage. Um, RealPage is a provider of on-demand software solutions for the rental housing industry, right? And so their software. Is is built for the owners and the managers of these rental properties to basically manage the entire process from start to finish. I mean, we're talking marketing, pricing, screening, leasing, accounting, purchasing, payments, anything you can imagine. That's what this platform was built for. Um, and RealPage, I, I always thought was was actually a pretty a pretty interesting um, opportunity. In, in the public market because of the opportunity that it was pursuing, right? Um, it turns out I wasn't the only one, Chris, and Toma Bravo acquired RealPage last year in an all-cash transaction, valued the company at an enterprise value of around $10 billion, um, which, which you know, at the time I started following RealPage, I mean, it was just a little small cap kind of getting its its feet underneath it. So, um, you remember Toma Bravo also acquired Ellie Mae. Not all that long ago, and and that is that was that big mortgage um, opportunity, right? The, the mortgage software that LMA um, has has just distributed all over, and and so I, I thought it was a really shrewd acquisition on Tom Abrava's part. Um, it made a lot of sense to me, and it makes a lot of sense to me that J.P. Morgan would want to do this, um, ultimately trying to drive that that digital experience. I mean, I can't imagine as a landlord. Something more frustrating than having to deal with getting paper checks in the mail. Like, I mean, that to me has just got to be, it sounds like it would be one of the most frustrating things in the world. And when you're a renter, Sending that check in, make sure it gets to your landlord on time, and then you got to wait for that check to clear, right? So it's it's just this constant balancing act, and and it seems like it would be so much better managed on a digital platform, um, and, and and given the opportunity that we've seen developing in this space over the last several years, you know, going back to that real page example, I absolutely understand why J.P. Morgan would want to get into this, given the exposure that they have to lending. To all of these property managers and owners, right? I mean, they have so much outstanding in, in mortgage, um, in, in mortgages with with this space. I mean, this would be a very complementary opportunity to expand um, it, the the economic value they can capture in that market. Last thing before we move on, in terms of the overall business of J.P. Morgan Chase, what it. What does this tell you? Uh, you know, sort of the launch of this because this this seems like something that uh, the the bank has put a lot of thought into, a lot of research into, and presumably a lot of money uh, in terms of a technology investment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of money is right. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it is something that a lot of these big banks could be. Um, Accused of, of maybe letting technology sort of pass them by, right? We've seen so many of these fintech businesses that have built up and scaled in such a short period of time, and and the big banks, I think, 
could be seen as maybe dragging their feet a little bit. Um, you know, J.P. Morgan, it, it, Jamie Dimon has committed J.P. Morgan to spending more than twelve billion dollars a year on technology here in the coming years. And if that sounds like a lot of money, I mean, it is, right? For if you know, and we spent pretty much a good, we spent a good portion of last week, kind of dragging Meta and Mark Zuckerberg through the mud, questioning how how you know they can justify investing so much in the metaverse. Um, you know, the difference here, at least is that fintech technology is a bit more of a proven entity. Um, and, and so, I'm sure that some of that spending will absolutely result in acquisitions. But, I mean, I, I think it is something really to keep an eye on in regard to this bank, right? Because, I mean, I, I do appreciate that, that Diamond feels like they need to do that. But that is a lot of money. And, and shareholders are going to need to make sure they hold this team accountable. If they end up spending that capital, if they spend that level of money, they need to hold hold management accountable to make sure they're actually realizing a return on that investment. Um, because it, it, you know, it, it is it is a it is a lot of money, and and there are a lot of companies out there that can kind of just keep on doing what they're doing. Um, and, and J.P. Morgan is still going to have to you know continue to play catch up to some degree, and not just J.P. Morgan, but but the bigger banks in general. As we typically get on a Monday morning, there were a bunch of Wall Street analysts upgrades and downgrades coming out this morning. And the one that caught your attention, my attention, I think a lot of people's attention was <laughs> Wells Fargo issued a downgrade of Hanes Brands. Now, Hanes Brands is the apparel maker, a namesake brand Hanes, but also other brands like Playtex and Champion. This analyst, this was a double downgrade. They, they cut Hanes Brands from overweight to underweight. And part of the note was just being very direct about the amount of debt this company has and essentially saying, we don't think management can handle this. Which I, like, like, so, I guess my first question is, which to you is more damning? The fact that they were just blunt about the fact like, yeah, we don't think you guys can handle the debt that you've taken on, or the fact that it's a double downgrade, which I don't remember the last time I saw one of these. I, yeah, I don't know. We were kicking that around. I don't know that I can recall seeing a double downgrade, or at least it phrased that way. I mean, it 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 really catches one's attention pretty quickly. I mean, it is like we don't we. I feel like that's something from like Arrested Development, right? I mean, when they they had like the you know the ratings there, there was like buy sell, and then there was like Bluth or something like that. I mean, it just it doesn't seem very good. Um, I I don't know that I share the same concerns on the debt side that Wells Fargo. Does I mean when you look at the business? I mean, let, let me just lead with this is not a stock I own, and it is not a, it's not a stock I will ever own. Okay, I I, I will start with that. Um, it's it's not I think a business that really I find uh, terribly attractive just from a fundamental perspective. But I mean, what does Haynes Brand do? Right, they they are apparel and it's innerwear, it's activewear. Um, innerwear is clearly the bigger part of the business, right? T-shirts, underwears, uh, whatnot. Um, and they've got 40% of revenue plus the international side of the business, which captured a lot of that innerwear market as well, tied to that innerwear. So they're selling a lot of underwear and they're selling a lot of t shirts. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of competition out there these days for that kind of stuff. If you look at the debt position of this company, I mean, they have around $4 billion in net debt. It is a lot. 
particularly when you consider that growth has hit a wall. I mean, the company has not grown revenue at all over the last five years, and and that's a problem. They've been able to maintain their gross margin line, but net margin remains challenged just due to costs. And I mean, there's no real pricing power in this stuff. Um, but when you look at the debt, I mean, their operating income covers net interest expense close to six times over. That's that's not that bad, and it's been relatively consistent through time. And and they don't have much. Of anything really on the debt side coming due until 2024, so I don't know that I share necessarily the same concerns about debt. But you know, when I look at a business like this, and I think, well, what's the opportunity to grow? What's the opportunity for investors? I mean, it's it's going to be a slow grower at best. I think they're always going to be dealing with challenges on on the cost side, right? You figure probably the biggest input for this business is cotton, um, and, and and they have to be very in, in touch with what the cotton markets are looking like. Uh, they they did last quarter talk about some real near term inventory challenges. Inventory got really bloated, and they're going to have to deal with that over the next several quarters. Uh, generally, what that means is they're going to cut production and probably cut prices as well. Uh, so I could see the concerns more there than necessarily on the debt side. I mean, I'm not saying four billion dollars net debt is good, right? But I, I don't know that it, I don't know that it merits a double double downgrade. Maybe a single downgrade on the debt, and then maybe a single downgrade on the inventory. And there's your double downgrade, courtesy JMO. I've never seen a double upgrade. <laughs> Just as long as we're talking about the analyst category, never seen it before. So. Anyway, yeah, yeah. we'll keep our eyes out. <laughs> Jason Moser, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Jason Moser is sticking around because he doesn't just talk the talk about taking advantage of bear markets. He's been buying a few stocks lately, and so has Matt Frankel. To share more about the four stocks they recently bought, here's Jason again. Plenty of great businesses out there that are selling at far more attractive prices today than they were at the beginning of the year, um, and I think that we've all been trying to take advantage of that uh, to a degree. And so we wanted to talk a little bit about today uh, just just some of the stocks that we recently bought, some of the stocks that you and I have have recently purchased ourselves. And so, and so I'm going to go ahead and start with you. Uh, let's talk about two of the stocks that you purchased most recently. And go ahead and hit me. What, what's the first? Well, it's tough to narrow it down to two because I recently sold one of my biggest stock positions because uh, they're getting bought out, store capital. Uh-huh. Um, so that left me with a lot of capital, no pun intended, in order to reinvest. So I took about half of it and I reinvested in one of my favorite stocks, uh, Realty Income, which one of my favorite things to do when these companies get bought out. I was very sad to see store capital go, but is to because it's being bought out at a premium. So I'm rolling it into real realty income, which is one of my favorites. That's a very similar business that's trading at a discount because of this market, you know, madness going on right now. Um, so I'm essentially getting a premium for one business and buying ninety percent the same business at a discount. Um, what exactly does what does realty income do? Is that is that a fund or is that an actual? That's a REIT. It is a REIT. It's uh, ticker symbol is O. It's a realty. It's a real estate investment trust. They specialize in single tenant properties, just like Store Capital. Uh, Walgreens is a big tenant. Um, I know BJ's Wholesale is a big tenant. They have a bunch of warehouse clubs in their portfolio. They're one of the big ones. 
um, and they pay monthly dividends. They actually have a tr- registered trademark on the term the monthly dividend company. Um, <laughs> and they've paid over 600 consecutive monthly dividends. Wow. They've raised the dividend over 100 times since they went public in 1994. Um, so they raise it essentially every quarter. Uh, it's a really interesting company and one of my favorite REITs. And I was really excited to be able to, to add to my position with you know, you know, unexpected money because store capital got bought out. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice problem to have. Sometimes we run into that situation, and it's always a good reminder that it can happen. And it's 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 always, you know, I think that's why it's so valuable to have that watch list, right? You always want to be prepared because those things do come up. It's nice to be able to go ahead and, and act quickly when you can. Uh, what's another one that you recently purchased or added to? Another one that I added to was with that same you know bucket of money that I got from Store Capital was Pinterest. Uh, oh wow! Interesting. P I N S. Advertising businesses in general are getting crushed right now, but Pinterest really isn't. Uh, its recent earnings were like kind of in contrast to every other advertising business I've heard report so far. <laughs> you know, Facebook. We all know what happened after Facebook's earnings or Meta, whatever it's called now. We know what happened after Alphabet's earnings. Um, the stock took a dive because of weak advertising, especially in YouTube. But Snap P- too. Yeah, Snap, Snap too. Well, I am. Uh, Pinterest is kind of going the other direction. For one, they gained active users for the first time in you know over a year, which you know it's really encouraging that they're returning to earnings growth, and they're doing a much better job of monetizing in markets that they haven't been able to do that really. Um, they, they started advertising in Latin America during the quarter in a few different countries, which foreign monetization has been one of their biggest problems. Um, so they're doing a great job of moving in the right direction. Their revenue was up eight percent year over year, and this is an advertising business. Yeah. So that it's the numbers are really moving in the right direction. And even though the stock popped after earnings, it's really encouraging. And I still think it's a bargain just based on how beaten down it is and how well it's doing compared to a lot of other advertising stocks. So I guess those are my big two recent purchases. Uh, Jason, what about you? What have you bought recently? Well, Matt, you know we're all getting older, right? I, I've spent all my life in, in grow my wealth mode, and I still am to an extent. But but I also have a goal over the coming decade, really, to build out the dividend presence in my retirement portfolio as well. I want to give myself that reliable income stream um, that that can just do so much, right? I mean, it can be so powerful, especially especially later on in life. So I yeah, you know, I've been looking for for stocks that you know the longer you own them, the more they make sense, right? They're not going to be stocks that. Don't Overnight, not going to light the world on fire, but they're solid businesses with great prospects, big market opportunities, and most of all, uh, pay a reliable dividend. And so, to that end, um, I recently, the beginning of this month, beginning of October, I did make two purchases. I added to two positions that I already uh, had established. Uh, one was Home Depot, which I'm sure everybody's familiar with, right? Home Improvement. Um, they are the the leader in a very large and growing market. I mean, when you look at the housing market writ large, right? I mean, that's a big opportunity. And, and I think you got to whittle that down uh, to really get to the core focus of, of what Home Depot is all about. But I mean, you've got I think two interesting dynamics to the business. Not only in the do-it-yourselfer like me, but also the pro, right? I think whenever you have work done on your house, a lot of times those contractors are getting those supplies from either Home Depot or Lowe's, right? I mean, those are really the the two big obvious names in the space. And so, uh, Home Depot is just I think they've done a really good job in catering to the pro customer. 
uh, over time. And, and they, you know, they also recently made this acquisition of HD Supply, which ultimately is just going to it's going to be integrating a massive distribution network for this business to, to really, I think, help capitalize on becoming more efficient and more omnipresent, um, it, not only for the pro customer, but, but really it's going to help serve the, the do-it-yourself customer at the end as well. Um, when you look at the the, the bigger picture dynamics, sort of the macro picture there, half the homes in the U.S. now are 40 years or older, um, which means they, they require work, they require upgrading. Even when you have a home that you feel like you've got it just the way you want it, boom. You know, you want to do something else, right? Something else has to be done. It's, it never ends. And so I, I feel like uh, this is a company, they, they pay a reliable dividend. Um, they've made effective share repurchases. Uh, to, put, to put some context around that, Home Depot is not a dividend aristocrat, but if I counted it up, and I believe they are now on 14 consecutive years growing their dividend. And so maybe they are working toward that dividend aristocrat uh, status. The share counts down over 11.5% over the last five years. And so to me, just kind of an easy, an easy one to just buy and sort of just hold, right? I mean, you, you're not gonna, you're not gonna light the world on fire with it. But the longer you own it, the more it makes sense. And, and what I mean by that is the five, the five-year total return on, on Home Depot's, uh, 100%. You stretch that out to 10 years, it's 512%. I think, given just the market that it serves, given the demographic that it serves, um, it's one that I feel very comfortable owning for long uh, periods of time. Um, and then the other one, you know, I, I, a lot of people know that I'm, I'm a big fan of McCormick, um, just as a consumer alone, right? I mean, I use a lot of their stuff. I do, I do a lot of the cooking in our house. I enjoy it. Um, I, I remember growing up <laughs> with all that McCormick stuff in our house, and uh, we consequently have a lot of it in our house today. Um, again, another leader in its respective market. They've made some smart acquisitions recently to continue to gain share and sort of expand that market opportunity out into. Beyond just spices, right? I mean, now they're in flavors and sauces, and, and you know they have Frank's Red Hot, for example, and Cholula. I mean, you, you see that stuff everywhere, and um, I, I think again, I like their value proposition. They they're responsible for ninety percent of the flavor and only ten percent of the cost of the food that we're eating. Um, and, and the nice thing is that everybody's got to eat. So fairly uh, reliable business there. A lot of repeat purchases. Very strong presence in both consumer and commercial markets. Uh, the consumer segment's responsible for about sixty five percent of revenue. Uh, flavor solutions, which is the the industrial side, more more like thirty five percent of revenue. But then also you know the flavor solutions that industrial side it's a little bit lower margin because they're selling more in in, in bulk so to speak and so you see the consumer segment responsible for closer to 75% of operating income uh, to 25% for the flavor solution side but um, again another one of those businesses the longer you own it the more it makes sense the 5 year total return there is 75% but you stretch that out to 10 years uh, 205% and and McCormick is a dividend aristocrat which i suspect they'll want to they'll want to keep that title for as long as they can so another one where i feel uh, comfortable owning it for very long periods of time, and I think the valuations uh, in today's market tumult make a lot of sense for long-term owners. Yeah, I, I like both of those because they're they're both beaten down, but they're kind of like timeless businesses, you know. Yeah, um, you're always going to need home renovations. Now, the the consumer spending might ebb and flow over time, but but I mean, it's it's a business that's always going to be in demand. 
Exactly. It's, I mean, it's, it, you said it, ebb and flow, right? It's never a straight line up, but you're looking for businesses that serve these big markets that have these these big long-term opportunities. And, you know, owning these types of businesses that we've talked about today too, Matt, maybe maybe not Pinterest as much, but but I mean, I think when you own those, those more stable income-producing investments, they really allow us to invest in Right, they allow us to stay in that grow your wealth mode and, and to do that with confidence and to be able to take that longer view because you're well diversified, right? You're not just you're not just targeting one particular sector of the market. And I think that really speaks to to uh, being nicely diversified. The older you get, the the, the better it feels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm in that mode as well. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.